Hello and welcome to a special episode of Addictions Edited, the podcast from the Society for the Study of Addiction. And this is a special episode because I'm here today talking to Ebdesam Saleh, um, who is this year's, that's 2023, this year's Fred Yates Prize winner. Um, now, uh, Ebdesam Saleh is a doctoral researcher from the Charité University Medical School in Berlin and has covered all sorts of research, but mainly focused on uh, substance use among uh, refugee and migrant populations um, with lots and lots of uh, fascinating methods, results and and populations. So, um, Ebtisam, congratulations on winning the SSA's Fred Yates Prize. Uh, You've just returned from a field trip in Yemen where uh, we weren't able to conduct this interview because there wasn't enough internet access or bandwidth for, for us to dial in and do so. Um, Can you tell us briefly what research you're currently working on in Yemen? Well, thank you for having me in this interview, and uh, it's my honor to be nominated for the Fred Yates Prize. Of course, uh, the trip to Yemen was exciting, and um, it actually was following up on a study that we already started earlier this year. It's about substance use among the Yemeni population, and as we also interviewed the populations from a professional and academic backgrounds on that aspect. So this is like an updated study, you can say that, because I already conducted similar study in 2013, and we think that it's time now, it has been 10 years. So we want to follow up on this problem, especially after the last study about the pandemics of the COVID and that high increase of demand of uh, drugs in Yemen. Uh, So we noticed that uh, there is an increase of irrational drugs demand and for prescription and prescription drugs. Sometimes the population or the Yemeni population are um, usually uh, use natural like substance that's called cat. It's amphetamine like substance. So um, uh, the concern here that mixing these drugs, prescription and prescription drugs with cat, and so managing the data collection in humanitarian setting like Yemen is not easy to do it from uh, an online or from distance. So I was there training the co-researchers on how to conduct this project and manage the data in the in the field. It sounds like a like an enormous undertaking. Um, your background is in Yemen, and you started work as a as a community pharmacist, and it was it was there working as a community pharmacist that you first encountered addiction and, and substance use. Uh, can you tell me about your experiences there? I worked as a community pharmacist right after the graduation from the pharmacy school in Aden City, Aden University in Yemen. And I was excited, like any graduated, uh, freshly graduated students, to an enthusiastic by communicating with lay people and to be with more benefit and providing more value and more information uh, for for how to use drugs and medications. But unfortunately, many drugs were demanded without prescription. And even worse, um, community pharmacists, they're um, working as a community pharmacist. You have to be prepared. Uh, there is a potential to get threatened by women to sell some prescription drugs, especially at night shifts. So I got personally went through a similar experience and accidents. So similar scenario happened to me and to other colleagues as well. And I found out that it is usually advisable also for females who are pharmacists uh, to only work on a morning shift instead of uh, night shifts to avoid these problems. After this accident, I was curious to know 
how we can manage drug abuse and misuse as a community pharmacists. What is our role as community pharmacists in this context? Or even a broader question that what is the extent of the problem of drug abuse in our community? Have anyone conducted similar studies or something like that? So why there is no data available on studies uh, about substance use in Adan city or in Yemen overall? So from the community pharmacy started my passion or let's say my interest in finding answers for similar questions. You talk about some of those those challenges working in a, in a community pharmacist and, and prescription drugs and, and, and accidents, I think, as you refer to them. Um, was that something that you were prepared for in your uh, like pharmacy training uh, when you were preparing to, to do that work? Mm, that's a wonderful question. And it's the same question I had in my mind on um, why they did not uh, in the pharmacy school teach us similar training or prepared us for similar scenario. And um, I found the answer when I pursued my master's studies in Jordan. Uh, that yes, indeed, there is some certain trainings and courses on how to prepare pharmacists, community pharmacists for um, drug abuse and misuse in, in similar uh, societies. But, uh, you know, it's also difficult to prepare pharmacists who are also working in a conflict setting where there is war and legal weapons. So it's still a little bit complicated context when we talk about conflict setting like Yemen. People may be very familiar with the US situation, the opioid epidemic, but they, they might be less familiar with uh, the, the, the types of drugs that are being asked for or demanded in, in Yemen. Can you, can you talk us a bit through the kind of drugs that people were asking for? Before 10 years ago, like the prescription drugs that usually demanded, as we asked and made some surveys among pharmacists, were usually like sedatives, uh, benzodiazepines were among the top of the list. Um, antidepressants, uh, opioid analgesics as well. And some of the people who use or over-demand these prescription drugs, some of them mix it, as I mentioned earlier, uh, with, with the TAT, which is amphetamine-like substance. So they try to achieve some balance, as the CAT is a stimulant and the sedatives are, uh, you know, trying to achieve some equilibrium point, if we can say that. Uh, but uh, the strange thing that of the results was that also non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ketoprofen specifically was highly demanded among a population who use cut during the cut session. So cut session is usually um, chewing cut for long hours in between the teeth and gums. So they usually have problem in their teeth. So um, to manage the problem and the symptoms of their uh, teeth pain, they usually use ketoprofen and sometimes just located uh, locally while during the CAT session. And this was some of the unique um, results of our study. The situation now, it gets, uh, uh, we're still working on the preliminary data and uh, still uh, did not finish. But so far we find that it's not um, different, but uh, new drugs also um, added to the list in which we can find, for example, in addition to the opioid analgesics, we have ketamine, keptagon, um, increases demand uh, for um, to use with or without cat chewing. Um, so so from, from Yemen, um, you then moved to uh, Jordan uh, to begin, I guess, your academic career there. What prompted that move? And 
Um, you've spoken to me before about facing some challenges being a single Yemeni woman uh, moving to study. Um, perhaps, you know, you can talk us through those a little bit. Yeah, well, um, I started to apply for uh, international scholarship, the German Academic Exchange Service. Um, right, I found this problem when working as a community pharmacist and I could not uh, work as this for a longer time and I was motivated to find solution about it and that I cannot do without the research tools, of course. So pursuing a master's studies was my aim and applying for international scholarship, it was um, somehow the safest zone for me to to make sure that I might, you know, convince my family to let me leave the country and because I'm already covered with the uh, international scholarship. So, yeah, I, I have been awarded uh, the scholarship, luckily. And um, one of the challenges as uh, being a Yemeni woman at, the, at that time, and we are talking about uh, 10 years ago, so um, it was not really uh, that acceptable or comfortable for the society that a single young lady travel alone and study abroad. So um, the situation in our family is encouraging a little bit, luckily, because my mother also um, herself studied abroad, her master's and PhDs in philosophy. So it wasn't something new in, at, the, at the family level, at least. But again, uh, you know, in this context, um, it's all, always challenging to travel alone and, uh, you know, uh, you have, um, as, a, as a Yemeni uh, woman or any woman traveling from similar contexts and sociocultural beliefs, then at least you have to do um, to make sure that you manage your accommodation, your financial, your in advance and a good contacts also in advance before you travel. So at least your family will have an idea about that you are safe and sound and yeah, that might facilitate uh, the trip. And uh, it's also, um, maybe I can advise the, the woman in similar context, but I would like also to, to word a message for the parents themselves to, to be more encouraging, supportive uh, for their girls to continue and pursue their passion abroad. So it was during this Masters in, in Jordan, um, and again, you, you, you've spoken to me before about this, um, but you describe there being one lecture about uh, um, neurobiology of addiction, um, where a kind of light turned on for you about um, addiction as a subject. Uh, what was that lecture about, and what was it that really kind of caught your eye um, about that element of, of addiction? Well, the Neurobiology of Addiction lecture is one of the most important turning point I had. Uh, you know, in general, the master program in Jordan as a clinical pharmacist, it was really important starting my research in general. But although I was amused by the clinical pharmacy subjects and the training in hospitals, the turning point happened um, for specifically for the addiction research. Uh, from the first lecture I attended of Professor Mayada Wazaifi, and that lecture was about the addiction neurobiology that have answered the many questions in my mind, such as why people seeking substances at the first place, or um, why can't they stop addiction by themselves? How certain medications work and have the potential for abuse? So finding the answers for all of these questions in one lecture 
was like, ooh, like a light that, you know, helped me finally to understand what was going on in my country since I was a child and witnessing all this population consuming cotton and other substances. And at the same time, it, it was fascinating information, but it also triggered even further questions. Like, what types of prescription drugs that might be preferred among population who consume cot in Yemen? That was before I conducted the study. And what is the experience of Yemeni women in that case? Are, are Yemeni women also consuming several or they prefer some prescription drugs or something like that? Do healthcare professionals in Yemen know about this problem and how can they manage it? So I was more focused on, okay, to reflect the information from this lecture to my community. And here started uh, the, the idea of the thesis for the master thesis to conduct uh, the project about substance um, prescription and prescription drugs abuse and misuse under supervision of Professor Mayada Wazaifi. And uh, you've continued to work with uh, Professor Mayada Wazaifi and, and indeed she's presented at SSA conferences and does, does amazing work herself. Um, and it's worth noting at this point that she also nominated you for the for the Fred Yates Prize. This seems like a really um, important collaboration um, in your career. Yes, exactly. Well, thankfully that I was one of the luckily students of Professor Mayada Wazaifi. And she is not actually just a, a professor, but becomes like a mentor. And I'm pretty sure that many students would say the same about her. Uh, we worked on relevant projects even after the master's studies. Um, I worked at her research assistant also in, in the Jordanian context about uh, prescription and prescription drugs. And also I knew about the SSA via Professor Mayada. <laughs> so she was always there um, directing me and uh, gave me some recommendations and advice on what are the most prestigious and important scientific gathering that I, I need to focus on and keep contact with, with a high level mental, mentality of about addiction and researchers. So she's fully dedicated and helping students as well. And uh, she used to say to me that uh, you can do much more than what you think. And I was always wondering, what does she see in me? And I cannot see. <laughs> so yeah, I was amused on how she was an encouraging person. And um, thanks for her uh, insight and encourage to nominate me for the Fred uh, Yates Prize as well. So. And so again, kind of moving on towards your, your work in Berlin, I'm, I'm really quite interested because up until up until your, your master's, your, your focus was much more on, I guess, psychopharmacology, neurobiology, those kind of like uh, that end of science. And, and a lot of the work you've done uh, more recently has been qualitative, um, you know, talking to uh, migrant populations, refugees. Um what what prompted you to kind of make that shift from more kind of quantitative data to the more qualitative um, type of research? To be honest, at the beginning, I wasn't a very big fan of qualitative, uh, given the fact that I'm coming from, from quantitative background as a pharmacist. But when investigating sensitive topics such as addiction, and also among divers, a group of population who are coming from different lang linguistics and uh, cultural backgrounds, then it comes the value of qualitative approach uh, to dig deep into the information. And honestly, learning qualitative research tools wasn't easy for me. And it was challenge and privilege at the same time. Based on my quantitative and clinical background, um, it wasn't easy to understand the theoretical approach 
and how we can give really an, a good implication of qualitative research. But being a doctoral student at the at Department of Psychiatry and Neurology under supervision of Professor Andreas Heinz and Ulrike Kruge and doing several projects also with multidisciplinary um, colleagues from psychology, from social sciences, uh, it you know, widened my horizon beyond the, the only uh, strict quantitative approach because you find out that fascinating um, informations, um, you can't go deeper into the information, um, go in-depth or reach for information without using qualitative approach. And it was a chance for me to familiarize with the psychosocial aspects of addiction. Uh, from a qualitative perspective, in addition to my pharmacological um, quantitative background. So, although sometimes it seems that, okay, I may shift from scientific pharmacological bubble, but engaging with population at the community level and understanding their life experiences and their perspective, it was really helpful for, at, the, at the scientific um, approach as Overall, I know it helps me and guides me to better formulate the research question based on the population needs and their real life experiences. So I noticed myself how it is overwhelming for population coming from a conflict setting to answer questionnaire. I was there personally in, in some, you know, workshop among refugees. And some of the researchers uh, distributed these questionnaires and because the questionnaires is usually has that um, uh, limitations in structures and quantities and scales. It was confusing for many refugees, even if it is well translated. But they preferred more to talk to them. So people love to talk. And they were talking spontaneously about their life experiences, their concerns. And even you know from their questions, not just their answers, you know from their questions and concerns where are the gaps, what they need to know, and how to tailor um, informative guide for them. So afterwards, I really valued the, the qualitative approach with its, with its significant value, in addition to the quantitative approach, of course. So, so in, your, in your extensive work with um, uh, migrant popula populations, refugees, um, in, and people who've um, experienced uh, conflict as well in, in, in Yemen, you've, you've done work on all, all three uh, groups of people. So people might be, I guess, many people will be aware of the challenges that, that people who use drugs face, but much, much fewer people will be aware of the specific uh, contexts, backgrounds, history, and challenges of of refugees and and migrant populations. Um, can you can you kind of explain what some of those specific um, issues, needs, um, and uh, challenges are? As you said, indeed, trauma and life challenges are usually associated with substance use, even among general populations. So. But in the context of people who survived war and traumatic events and post-migration challenges, um, this might be a little bit more complicated in that context. In addition to the fact that their different cultural backgrounds, values, norms, and they have different supportive systems, forcibly migrants lost their safe zone at the beginning, so completely, in terms of their land, their own families and beloved ones. So they are struggling to start a new life, but at the same time, they are still living in a 
parallel world in their painful memories. Migration trip itself could be, you know, a horrible experience. And uh, there are, I heard so many horrible stories about them. As I remember one of the refugees whom I met, he said, I cannot remember what was the last time I slept very well since the war. Even after my arrival, I struggle with flashbacks, remembering how my leg was injured and that girl who died while we was running together away from the home country. Similar painful memories and among the, this uh, population whom I have higher susceptibility to use substances, this might complicate the situation into further comorbidities like insomnia or anxiety, trauma, uh, flashbacks. So the difference in the motives for substance use among similar population is different in terms also for drug-seeking behavior, as they also seeking sleeping pills or analgesics for skeletal muscular pain. So that might be associated with post-traumatic stress disorder as a psychosomatic symptoms, for example. So I would like just to mention that this is also not the case, not the usual among all refugees. We are just talking here about the qualitative projects and the interviews I con conduct. So. Another difference is in the context of post-migration challenges that emerged from the new host community, and not just individual because of their psychosocial factors, but also from these factors emerged from the new home host community. Um, in terms of um, different drugs legalizations, wider availability of drugs and affordable costs, unlike the situations in, in their home countries, for example, so here is another challenge and difference, but it is more associated with the host community that might increase the susceptibility for substance use among refugee groups who have already complicated traumatic events. Uh, so, so for people working in, say, policy or treatment settings, I mean, are there any, from your research, are there any indications as to what kind of policy measures or treatment measures? I guess, I guess my question is, what, what can people do to help? to help or to improve this situation? Yes, thank you. This is a brilliant question. And this is why we do the research actually from the first place. And But let's first focus on a good informative tool or a good informative guidance because what people don't know, they are afraid of. And here is the situation because population coming from um, uh, different sociocultural backgrounds where um, substance use is highly stigmatized, the treatment system, there might be no treatment system in some countries, and if there is, it might be different. Some, some uh, give it an example, like it could be like a jail in our home country. On, and refugees' main concern is their legal status in the host community, so they are afraid also to report about their substance use problem. So... The main key here is that to provide um, a good informative tool tailored in a good linguistics and uh, culturally based on the cultural background of the refugees. So we need to implement and improve several informative um, tools. Those programs um, uh, need also to be targeting the host community, not just the refugee community. Why? Because refugees are challenged with multi-source stigma that also emerged from the host community, being a refugee unfortunately sometimes stigmatized in some host communities. 
and being a refugee who use substance, it will be even more stigmatized. So it will be great to minimize this stigmatization via targeting both communities, the host and the refugee community. And uh, there is also what we can do is um, to improve the role of primary uh, care providers. Um, similar health institutions need to be involved in the assessment and referrals of refugees who use substances because they are a direct contact in case of any health issues. So that, this might be one of the policies that could facilitate connecting refugees who use substances to the treatment. Another important issue here or a technique that we can implement in some host countries is uh, unfortunately refugees have limited access to the psychotherapy. And it's important to facilitate the access to psychotherapy for refugees because, as we mentioned earlier, they already struggle with some mental health stressors. And, but also there are some challenges during the psychotherapy session, which is the linguistic barrier. So in some countries, they reported that there is still insufficiency in providing interpreters and uh, good communication during the psychotherapy session with refugees from different linguistics and cultural background. Uh, focusing on the different cultural background of the patient and to be familiar with it so they can tailor the treatment program in, in uh, a good, effective way. You mentioned there about uh, people's concern about their legal status uh, when, they're, when they're refugees. Um, as a researcher, how do you then you know, recruit, find and, and engage with populations where, where they're often hidden and often uh, a bit cautious about speaking to people? Yeah, it's challenging, of course. And although, although I have similar background with some targeted population of the refugees, but it's still challenging because of the fact that the topic itself is sensitive. And um, as, I, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, refugees also afraid uh, because of they are more concerned about their legal status. So the solution here is to recruit uh, refugees from health institutions, because at that place they are willing to talk about their health in general, and then we can start talk about their mental health as an initiation to the topic. So. Um, I preferred also to use first some health skills and questionnaires, a short one, like for example insomnia severity index or quality of life assessment tool, and which is from one to two pages. And this kind of short questionnaires works as icebreakers at the beginning. And then we start the interview if they accept to talk about their life experiences and find how we can then from there to start talk about substance use or if they complain of sleeping problem or some muscular uh, pain, etc. So I also, in addition to the health institutions, I like to conduct mental health awareness programs among refugees inside the refugee camps so they can better understand the value of discussing their mental health issues and there is no shame about it and there is no worry about their legal status as well. And it's normally, uh, substance use is normally accepted in the host community, unlike our home communities. So similar settings, okay, facilitate and motivate some participants from the refugee group uh, to openly and finally talk about their problem. It, it sounds like yeah, complex and, and difficult work at times. 
Yes, indeed, because many times I go back with zero participants, so they they are not willing to talk about it, and and many of them actually deny they have um, similar problem or even mental health stressors. So, uh, as as part of your work, um, you deliver training for non governmental organisations um, in this area. How did you how did you get into this area of work and and what are your experiences? Are, are those non-governmental organisations often receptive or, or resistant to the kind of things you're talking about? Yeah, um, well, I, uh, I worked as, you know, um, advising and training and sometimes consulting for several organisations, either in Berlin or in Yemen, in my city. So, um, for example, I my main targeted staff is the, the staff and the members of these institutions to first ensure they understand the value of tailoring awareness programs based on the sociocultural backgrounds of refugees. So, for example, in Berlin, after attending some workshops among refugees, I was just a listener. I noticed how overwhelming for them to attend lectures in the presence of translator. It was delaying the process to understand and some of them even got feeling of strange about some mental health terminologies. So they don't understand or they are afraid to understand it. So some physical activities were also strange for them. And from there, I could um, advise and provide some um, suggestions and proposals to the, uh, to the training staff of these organizations on how to tailor uh, some programs that to be more linguistics and socioculturally sensitive um, approach so they can uh, easily absorb the information. For In Yemen, for example, I, I worked as a consultant for the awareness program about addiction and first of all, um, the staff themselves in Yemen is different in terms of stigmatization about substance use it's still highly stigmatized even among the the staff themselves of the center and um, my main goal was how to minimize the stigma also via information so i started to give them some workshops and courses to know about the neurobiology of addiction at the first place and how to know that this is also a mental health issue that we can manage only via minimizing the stigmatization and not make it as, you know, an issue that threatens the substance user himself. So, and um, another uh, population that I targeted for the training was the academics and the uh, pharmacists in Yemen as well. Again, although they are academics and pharmacists, but still the stigma higher there. And um, yeah, I tried to tailor their, the programs in which to provide more scientific backgrounds about it and then how or what applicable solution that we can do for the, uh, for the uh, uh, students who attend uh, health facilities such as medical students, nurse and pharmacists. Do you find yourself giving, giving training to, to pharmacists the kind of training that you would have liked when you were a pharmacist training? Oh yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now um, this is this is probably going to come as a bit of a blow to anyone listening, but um, considering the, the the breadth and the importance and and I mean if it's a word the amazingness of your your work your research to date, you're actually in the position where you're you're just at this point 
preparing to submit your PhD thesis, is that correct? Yes, I'm still at, uh, at, the, la- at the late stages, let's say, of writing the dissertation. <laughs> the, the last stages that seem to, seem to last a, a lifetime. Um, and it's the question that no PhD uh, candidate ever wants to hear, but what are your plans for, uh, for after submitting? Yeah, and uh, as you said, it, it seems like uh, uh, the first answer that any PhD student will say, just let me finish and breathe, <laughs> come back to a normal life again. And <laughs> first of all, um, I'm planning also to continue the projects uh, in, in Yemen in, in a research context or as um, a trainer and a consultant for the awareness program there. And um, also, um, already started a collaboration with other researchers in different countries, host countries, about refugees. Um, thinking also, still thinking now about different questions, about giving some comparison between different refugee groups from different sociocultural backgrounds, if this also reflected on their behavior of substance use. So, um, I'm afraid that the questions will never end. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be stuck in this uh, in this approach, which is uh, a, a, a wonderful actually journey. In that at the end you have something to do, and hopefully it will help people who are coming from a similar context that I come from. And uh, yeah, we will see where this journey will end. <laughs> um, uh, amazing work, and I look forward to hearing about where the journey goes. Um, as the Fred Yates Prize winner, you'll be presenting at our at our annual conference on the 9th and 10th of November, and you're also um, coming to the PhD symposium on the 8th. So for anyone who wants more detail about uh, the latest research on uh, substance use among refugees, among migrant populations, about people who've experienced conflicts, um, then do make sure that you're there and, and present for that lecture. Ebtisam, I've interviewed you twice now and it's been absolutely inspirational um, both times. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today and I look forward to seeing you in Newcastle in November. Thank you, Robert, for this nice and smooth uh, interview as usual and many thanks for the uh, Society for the Study of Addiction in the UK to provide me such a wonderful opportunity and and nominated for this Radiatus Prize. I'm looking forward to seeing you all and... um, Uh, Many thanks again.